So, we've been in this series, obviously, Confronting Conflict, and today is part number five, and we've been talking about confronting conflict in our relationships, we've been talking about confronting conflict in the workplace, if you're in a toxic work environment, and sort of what that looks like. And today, I want to approach it maybe from a little bit different of an angle, and if I could sort of like add a word to the title, I would call it Confronting Conflict Within. What do we do when we are in conflict with ourselves? What does it look like when we are, you know, how do we find peace within? What happens when we feel this internal conflict, when we're rest, we have a, a restless heart, so to speak, and dealing with fear and anxiety and all those different things that seek to rob us of our peace? And how do we find the peace within? So, my foundation verse today is Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read a, a little bit of a lengthy passage here. It's a pretty well-known passage. This is from the Apostle Paul, and he's writing this. It's a letter to the church in Philippi, and he's writing this in prison, as if these words aren't powerful enough already. Keep that in mind, because it just kind of makes it mind-blowing. But this is what he says in verses, reading 6 through 9, 11 through 12. He says this, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And it goes on. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And then finally, he says this in verse 11, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Wow, yeah, that's some good stuff right there. Now, to start off, let's just go through a couple working definitions here. First of all, let's just look at the word peace. And peace here is defined as an inner calm, a poise, and a balanced mindset. And it's also being able to act in that manner regardless of the circumstances that you're going through. The word contentment means to be independent of circumstances and to have need of nothing. Some powerful words, especially in our world today. Um, so I'm going to continue to refer back to this passage of scripture throughout the message today, but I want to start off just kind of pulling out a couple highlighted spots. So in verse number 11, Paul says that he has learned to be content. And that should be encouraging because that means that contentment, contentment is something that can be learned. It doesn't mean that it's just some special sort of spiritual gift that maybe certain people have it and other people don't. And, you know, I've got this special blessing, but, you know, sorry, I don't have it, right? It means that it can be learned, and if Paul learned it, that means that we can learn it too, because the same spirit that lives inside of Paul is the same spirit that lives inside of us today. And so that should be pretty encouraging. In verse number seven, Paul says that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. 
And so, as we just mentioned, the, the definition of peace, peace isn't just the absence of fear, it's also the presence of something. And it's also this sensation and feeling of being protected and guarded. And this word guard here is actually a military term. And it was used for when like a general of an army would send out that army to surround a city to protect it from invasion or attack. And Paul is saying that that's how we understand God's peace, that it is guarding our minds from invasion and attack. I like that. So in 2018, uh, my family was going through a very difficult situation and time in our lives. A couple years before that, my wife's father, Mike, was diagnosed with cancer. And so we had been dealing with that for, you know, a couple years, and it was just something that was always on our minds and just this concern. And then in early 2018, uh, it got to the point to where his health was, was rapidly declining, and he had to be hospitalized. And so he was, he was put in the hospital, and about two to three weeks later, Mike passed away. And it was obviously a very difficult situation. All the feelings and emotions that you would go through is, you know, what we went through. And, and for, for me personally, um, obviously extremely difficult losing my father-in-law. And it was also very difficult for me as a husband to watch my wife go through something like that. I'm sure all husbands in the room could relate that you know, you want nothing more than to be there for your wife, to help fix the problem, to say what you need to say to make her feel better, to do whatever you can do to just make things better. And then sometimes life gives you situations where there's just nothing you can do. And so it's just a very difficult situation. But a couple days before Mike passed away, something happened that I will never ever forget. So we were down in Seattle at the hospital, at UW Hospital, and, and my wife and her mom were in the hospital room with Mike. And, and I was, I think, down in the cafe, and I was coming back up the elevator to go back into the room to be with him. And got to the floor, elevator doors opened up. I stepped out into the lobby there, the floor, and something grabbed my attention. There was this family sitting in the little foyer lobby area, in the little seating area, and they were there with their sick, hospitalized loved one, and they were singing. And I don't remember the song that they were singing, but I know that it was a worship song. And it was powerful. And there was this family there, never seen them, never met them, obviously, just total strangers, singing the praises of their Lord and Savior in the middle of that hospital without a care in the world of who was there or who could hear it. And I just stood there, like, frozen. It was like I just, I just had to watch it. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, to be honest with you. And not only did it grab me, but in all the activity and commotion of the hospital, as doctors and nurses were walking by, they were stopped dead in their tracks just standing there watching it as well. And it was just this incredible moment because you don't expect to see something like that, right? Like that, I mean, that's not normal. But there's something powerful about when you sing praises unto the Lord in the middle of your painful situation. And, and so uh, as I was standing there watching it, I, I, just, I just started to cry. And, and I, I stepped into a bathroom that was right next to me and closed the door. And I just 
continued to cry. And it was just this sort of emotional whirlwind because I had, again, seen something that was just so powerful and moving. And yet at the same time, there's tragedy just a couple doors down the hallway. And, and I'll never forget just this feeling of peace that overcame me. This sensation, and all I'll say is just the presence of God surrounding my heart and my mind, of reminding me that, Jake, I'm here, and everything is going to be okay. And it was just this, this sort of reassuring feeling that God is there, that he is with us, that he's in control, and it was this reminder to trust him even during difficult times. And, and I can't remember if it was later that day or the following day, we were all in Mike's hospital room. My family was there, and Carmen and her mom were there. We were all there, and, and we were praying. And, and it came to Mike, and, and he started to pray. And again, it's something I'll never forget, because I, I, I saw a man there at the end of his life, never once complained, never once had a bad attitude. And I saw a man who prayed a prayer of thanksgiving about how blessed he was, about how thankful he was for his family and for the people in his life, how thankful he was for what God had done in his life. And I saw a man at peace. And I hope that that story can be a reminder that there really is a peace that passes all understanding that really can guard our hearts and our minds. And so, how do we get this peace? So there's a lot of different ways that I could have approached this message today, talking about peace, but I want to talk about how God can help us confront our internal conflict and how we can find peace within through relationships. And so I have two relationships, two big relationships that I want to talk to you about today, and I think these are the two most important relationships that we can have. So the first relationship, number one, is a relationship with God. It's the big one. It's the most obvious one, but it's the most important one, right? And so everybody starts off their life before we're, we enter into that relationship. We all start off, we're, we're in conflict with God, right? There's this, there's this sinful separation, right? What causes the conflict? It's our sin. It's our selfishness. It's our pride. So we all start off in conflict with God. But if we ever want to, again, confront our internal conflict, and if we ever want to find peace within, we first have to make peace with God. So Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, he says this, Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And so this, this conflict, essentially it comes down to, it's, it's this battle of wills. Before we make peace with God, we're, we want to be God for ourselves. We, we want to sit in that seat and say, I want to do what I want to do. I want to decide what's right and wrong for myself. I want my will to be done. But really what God's telling us is, hey, get out of my chair. That's not your spot, right? <laughs> And I like that it says it's the word governed, right? We want to sit in the governor's chair, and God's saying, get out of my chair. That's not your chair. And that's the root cause, that conflict, and, and that's the root cause of every problem in the world, right? All of our problems can really be boiled down to um, 
that we want to sit in that chair, that we want to have that authority and that position, that we want to put ourselves in the place of God. And, and that's, I mean, that's what the Bible tells us in Genesis 3, right? It's original sin. It's I want to do what I want to do, but God's saying, get out of my chair. And, and really, it, it's, a, it's about surrender, right? When you finally come to the end of yourself and you just say, okay, I'm done. Lord, not my will anymore. It's your will. And it's, it's this act of surrender. And that word surrender is difficult for us, especially in our world and our society today, especially in a place like America. America, we live in a very, a very privileged place. We live in a very individualistic society. And that word surrender just kind of rubs us the wrong way because we want to, again, be our own authority. And it's, it's very interesting to me. I feel like so many uh, people's sort of criticism or, or what keeps people away from Christianity or from God comes out of this sort of individualistic mindset. That our, our main approach to religion is, what is, is not whether or not it's true, but whether or not it's useful, right? What am I going to get out of it? Or, you know, people will reject God or Christianity and say things like, well, I've just never found it useful. I'm doing pretty good on my own. It may be good for you, but again, I don't have any use for it. My life's pretty good. I can live a good life without God. I'm doing fine on my own, right? But we never once stop and think that maybe asking whether or not it's useful is not the most important question. We should ask whether or not it's true is the most important question. But the fact of the matter is, is that we all have this internal conflict and, and we all sort of, uh, we have this sort of, I'll say, God-shaped hole in our, in our hearts, right? We're all looking for something to kind of fill that void, so to speak. And in a lot of these issues, there can be um, sort of natural things, right? A, a lot of our issues, a lot of our internal conflict, what robs us of our peace can be sociological or educational or psychological and can be physical problems, medical problems, whatever it is, and those can all be real and true things. But ultimately, throughout all of that, our, our deepest needs and our, our deepest desires and our deepest problems can only be met and solved in God. And so we, we realize that the more we seek to, filled that, to fill that void with natural answers, the more we realize how natural answers are inadequate to the supernatural problem that really it can only be filled by God. There is a great quote from St. Augustine, who was one of the early church fathers living in the third and fourth century, and he said this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Only love of the immutable can yield tranquility. I like that. So, making peace with God will help us develop two disciplines. It'll really help us develop more than that, but for the sake of the message today, I just want to talk about two of them. And these two disciplines will help us with finding the peace within. So the first discipline that it'll help us develop is thinking. Thinking is number one. And if we go back to Philippians chapter number four and verse number eight, Paul says, just as a reminder, whatever is true, and then he goes through that whole list, right? Whatever is excellent and praiseworthy and all that stuff. And then he says, think about such things things. What is true according to the Bible? See, what Paul wants us to do is think like big picture, the big picture. 
Now, oftentimes, up until recently, I, I kind of interpreted this verse a little bit differently, where I'm somebody, I, I deal with anxiety. It's something I've experienced in my life for the last handful of years. And oftentimes, when you're feeling anxious, the, the, the thought, you know, the, the, the mental train, right, just goes right off the rails. And you just start thinking about all the what-if scenarios and how bad things could be and whatever's imaginable and just, you know, it just goes right off the rails. And I've always thought, like, okay, think about what is true. And, you know, you try to recenter and what's true right now in this situation and all that. Try to get rid of all the what-if scenarios. And that can be very good. That can be very helpful. But what Paul's doing is... He's really trying to get us to think about bigger picture in terms of what is true according to the Bible? What is true according to God's word? And it's interesting, like if you were to go to a bookstore, or I guess Amazon, nobody goes to bookstores anymore, but you get the point. If you were to, if you were to buy a book on like anxiety and you know, helping you through all that stuff, you, you know, you're going to get a lot of tips and techniques about you know, things that you can do to help anxiety. And again, those things can be helpful. Uh, but what you won't get is a book that will tell you to answer the question of what is the meaning of life or why were you created and why are you here? And I, I think that's interesting Right? But, but what Paul's doing is, again, he's trying to get us to focus on the big picture. He's trying to get us to focus on the fact that you were created for a purpose. I mean, the fact of the matter is, and maybe this is why those questions are answered in any sort of anxiety book, or maybe why if you go see a counselor, they're not going to ask you to how to deal with your anxiety by asking you what is the meaning of life. It's because the fact of the matter is that some people don't believe that God exists. The reality is, is if there is no God, then life is just an accidental joke. We're all here by this sort of random chance, and nothing you say or do matters. And in the end, you just, when you die, you rot, and that's it. I don't know how that's going to help me with my anxiety and finding peace within, but again, we come back to what Paul says, what is true. And what is true is that you were created for a purpose. You were created by an almighty God who created you in his image. That means part of your purpose is to be an image bearer of God. And he created you. You have value, you have meaning, you have purpose in your life. And he created you to be in relationship with him because he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And it's just a reminder that, again, no matter whatever we're going through, whatever is robbing us of our peace in the moment, really it's all just temporary because ultimately we have a hope and a future in Christ Jesus. And so we got to think about that. Another thing that we should also think about is this word called justification. And justification is an act of God in which he declares a person righteous. So when you make peace with God, when you, you finally come to the end of yourself and say, okay, Lord, it's all you. I want a relationship with you. Come into my life today. You know, we call that salvation, right? It's usually this sort of re repentance and confession and, and typically what's, what comes along with, in fact, what does come along with, is justification. So as soon as you say, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sins, this happens. Which means at that moment, God declares you righteous. Which is amazing, okay? I mean, it's just amazing that now you can stand before God and when he looks upon you, he no longer sees you as a dirty, rotten sinner, he sees you as righteous. He sees you as covered in his son's righteousness. 
And man, justification can bring freedom, it brings peace, it brings rest, it brings contentment because we know we're not justified by our own efforts, we're not justified by anything that we did, we're justified by what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. And the best way to remember this word justification or justified is justified is just as if I'd never sinned. That's what happens. Come on now, right? Yeah, come on now. But that's what, ha I mean, like how, how crazy and powerful and amazing is that, right? That now when you give your life to the Lord and you ask for forgiveness of your sins, he looks at you just as if I'd never sinned because you are covered in his son's righteousness. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34 says this, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Nobody. No one. There is no condemnation. Acts 13, 39 says, Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So think about what is true that you have a purpose. Think about that you are now justified and you are seen as righteous in the eyes of God. So that's the first discipline is thinking. The second one is thanking. So thinking and thanking are two disciplines that I think can help us find the peace within. We go back to the opening verse, Philippians chapter four. In verse number six, Paul says, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So what Paul is not saying is that when, you know, you say your prayers, then you wait a little bit and see if God answers it or what God does, and then if he answers it the way that you want him to answer it, then offer up your thanksgiving. No, 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 no. That's not what you do. It says you offer up your thanksgiving while you pray. You send your requests, you offer up your prayers to the Lord, and, and, and that's really kind of this act of surrender of just saying, okay, Lord, it's, it's all in your hands now, man. I, I, it's out of my control. It's all you. Right? And then you thank him ahead of time for what he is going to do. And so, now this point, thanking is really ultimately about thanking God. But God brings people in our lives who we should be thankful for. And he brings people in our lives who can help us find our inner peace. And so I have a couple people today that I want to tell you that I am thankful for. A couple people. Now, obviously, there's a lot more that I could thank but I just want to talk to you about two of them. The first person that I am thankful for is my mom. Now, my mom, she is somebody who radiates peace and contentment unlike anything I have ever seen. It's amazing. And she is just the most stable, consistent, steady person I have ever met. And I have seen her go through some tough days, some difficult days, and she just weathers the storm. She just rides the wave, and it's, it's unbelievable. And, and when I was first experiencing my like, initial onset of anxiety, and it was this whole brand new you know, feeling and, and experience that I was going through, and it's awful. If you've ever gone through it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just terrible. And, and as I was you know, going through this, I, I still didn't even like, really understand, like, what are these feelings? Like, what in the world is going on? And it, you know, you're just freaking out. And I would just call my mom, and just talking to her would, she just has this peaceful presence, just talking to her would make me feel better. And I can honestly say that my, my mental health wouldn't be where it is today without my mom. And so mom, thank you, and I love you. 
Um, a couple verses before I get to the next person. Uh, Romans 8:28, Paul says this, and we know that in all things, right, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I mean, thank God for that verse, right? Imagine, if you will, just for a second, like, think about what the disciples were going through and thinking about when Jesus was on the cross being crucified. Like, this is literally the worst possible thing that could ever happen. How in the world could anything good possibly come out of this? And it did. It did, right? The worst possible thing you could imagine, something good, the greatest thing ever came out of it, right? And so think about that and remember that and be thankful for that the next time you're going through whatever it is that you're going through that is trying to rob you of your peace. Uh, the next verse I want to read to you is James 1-2. This is one of my all-time favorites. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I don't know about you, that verse just kind of blows my mind, right? Like it just, I mean, let's just be honest, that seems kind of crazy, does it not? And I can't remember, I can't remember who it was that I heard this from, but they, they, they said this about the Bible. Oftentimes we think of, of things in terms of something's either rational or it's irrational, right? It either makes sense or it's just nonsense. But sometimes the Bible says stuff that is in a third category, that is, it's transrational, right? That this verse, like, it doesn't make sense. Like, how can that be? But that doesn't mean it's just nonsense and it's irrational. It, it transcends rationality, right? It's, it's the piece that passes. It transcends all understanding. And that's what the Bible does sometimes. And you get verses like this that just kind of blow your mind. And I just love this verse. And in fact, my wife and I have a picture in our house with this, with this verse on it. It just says, consider it pure joy. And uh, it's just that reminder consider it pure joy because God's in control. Uh, the second person that I want to thank is a person who I never actually had the opportunity of meeting in person, but that is Pastor Tim Keller. Now, some of you maybe know that name. He was a pastor in Manhattan, New York for many, many years. And, and just a few months ago, uh, Pastor Keller, he passed away to go be with Jesus. And I never had the opportunity to meet him, but he is somebody who, for really about the last decade of my life, I have considered a pastor to me. And I can't tell you how many of his messages I've listened to on podcasts and YouTube and, and books of his that I've read. And he is, he is somebody who honestly has probably had more impact on my faith and in, in my sort of spiritual journey than anybody other than probably my dad. And he has just been an amazing voice into my life. And um, his, his book, The Reason for God, is a book that, one of my all-time favorite books, it found me at exactly the right time in my life. It was this divinely appointed thing. Somehow I found that book. It was exactly what I needed to read, exactly when I needed to read it. And, and so, Pastor Keller, thank you for your faithfulness, for your service, and for being a voice that has helped somebody like myself. And I, again, I can stand before you and say that my faith wouldn't be where it is today without Pastor Keller, so thank you. And the reason why I bring up Tim Keller is because he has a quote about prayer and peace that I think is just phenomenal. And I gotta read it to you, it says this, God answers your prayers by giving you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. 
He gives you what you would have asked for if you could see things from his perspective, and the degree to which you believe that is how much peace you will have. Yeah, I'm working on that one, right? Anybody else working on that one a little bit? Yeah, I'm working on that one still. But man, uh, I come back to that quote every so often, and uh, it's, it's encouraging. So that is the first relationship that we got to have. We, I mean, it's the most important run, right? It, that decision to enter into relationship with God, it is the most important decision, is the most important relationship you will ever have in your entire life, and that's, the num- that's number one. The number two relationship that we need is a relationship with a church. A relationship with a church. Now, I'm not talking about a building or an institution. I'm talking about a body of fellow believers, of people, right? And, and this relationship with the church, it doesn't have to be radius, although I think radius is a pretty great option. Uh, yeah, thank you. All right. I got, I got somebody who was fired up about that at least, right? I think radius is a pretty great option. Uh, I may be a little biased, but that doesn't mean that I'm wrong, okay? And so, yeah. Uh, but regardless, wh- whatever, whatever church it is, it, it, I mean, it's, it's got to be a life-giving church. It's got to be a grace-filled church. Um, and, and listen, we need church not because it's perfect, because it's not. There is no such thing as a perfect church, but we need church because it's filled with a bunch of imperfect people who are on a journey, who struggle just like we do. It's filled with a bunch of, what was it, chain smokers and boozers and all that stuff. (laughs) If you're here last week, you got that reference. If not, you're probably like, what in the world is he talking about? But watch last week's message. It'll make sense. Okay. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 19 and 20, Paul says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So once you make peace with God, okay, as I mentioned in the last point, there's that salvation process, right? We confess our sins, we make peace with God, we're now justified. What comes next in that process is something that's called adoption, which means you are now a part of a family. And the family is the church. It's the body of Christ of fellow believers. And so when you make peace with God, welcome to the family. And it means that, first of all, God doesn't just like forgive us our sins and then say, all right, see you later, have a good one. No, he takes us in to his family, and he calls us his own, and he puts his name on us, and he gives us a new identity, and part of that new identity is that you are now declared and seen as righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And so this is a family. We are the family of God. And Hebrews chapter 2 says this. It says, both the one who makes people holy, that's God, he makes us holy, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family so that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That's pretty cool. Um, So the relationship with church here really is about friendship. The relationship with church is is about, it's about being a part of a team. I can't tell you how much fulfillment I get out of being a part of a team here. I gotta give a shout out to my media guys in the back. So, I mean, you guys are awesome, thank you so much. That's my team, by the way. Love you guys, you're awesome. But I can't tell you how much fulfillment I get out of just being a part of a team. When, when you get together with people 
who are on the same journey that you are and, and you're using your spiritual gifts to contribute to the body, to the kingdom of God, it's just powerful, man. When you're contributing to something that makes an eternal difference, I mean, what could be better than that? And so we here, we call it the dream team. And those are the people that make Radius Church happen every week. This church is so much more than just somebody standing up here giving a message every Sunday. There's so many people that are involved in making this church go and these services happen. And, and next steps is how you can figure out how to and learn how to get on the dream team. But it's, it's how we do some of those things that are on the wall there about finding freedom and discovering purpose. I mean, that again, that's going to help you deal with some of the internal conflict when you discover purpose and you discover what your spiritual gift is and you use it to contribute to the church it's just awesome stuff man and so uh, a relationship with church is about friendship it's about being a part of a team and it's about making friends with people who are on the same journey that you are and c.s lewis one of my favorite authors he has a great quote on friendship and this is what he says friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Yes. Isn't that perfect? I mean, that, yeah, that's perfect. It sums it up exactly. And I just got to say, this church is filled with a bunch of you twos. Okay? And, and listen, one of, the, like, one of the biggest lies that the enemy will try to feed you is that whatever you're going through that is robbing you of your peace, right? They will, the enemy will lie to you and say, you're the only one. Nobody else knows. Nobody else can understand. Nobody else can relate. They, the enemy wants you to feel isolated. They want you to feel that you are the only one, but that is a lie. And this church is filled with a bunch of U2s, and life groups is how we find the U2s. All right? Go out. Go out to the booth. It's out there in between services and after the second service, and, and just get involved in a life group and get plugged in and find, find the U2, Okay? Um, so I want to talk about some attributes of true friends and real friends and how God uses those relationships and those friendships, again, to help us confront our conflict and find our peace within. So the first, uh, the first attribute of a true friend <clears throat> is that a true friend will tell you the truth. Yeah, they'll tell you the truth. Proverbs 27, verses 5 through 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, there's a lot there, but I just I want to grab that little phrase, faithful are the wounds of a friend, because that really grabs my attention. That means the wounds of a friend can be trusted. So how many know sometimes hearing the truth hurts a little bit? We don't like it. We get offended. It hurts our feelings. But if it's coming from a true friend, that means we can trust it. So do you have somebody in your life who you can tell the truth to, and do you also have somebody in your life who can tell the truth to you? Because we need that. Proverbs 27, verse 9, it says, The pleasantness of a friend springs from their, uh, that's the second portion, uh, the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Some of the translations say counsel, but either way, that word advice or counsel, it means to confide in someone and to share your secrets with them. And we all need this, but you can't appoint yourself as somebody else's truth teller. They have to appoint you, all right? I know, sorry, but you have to appoint your truth tellers. And, and that's a great way to do what's also a biblical principle out of Proverbs, where 
the Bible tells us to, above all else, guard your heart, right? That's how we can guard our heart, when we can appoint who the truth tellers are. So I'll just say for me personally, the, the number of people in my life who can legitimately tell me the truth, call me out, provide criticism, whose advice I seek, whose opinions I genuinely take to heart, whose counsel I seek out, it's a short list. There's not a whole lot of people on that list, but that's how you guard your heart because what that means is if somebody comes along and has some criticism of you, has some opinion of you, who wants to say something about you, whatever, if they're not on your list, who cares, right? Who cares? Uh, you're not on my list. Have a nice day, right? <laughs> Have a nice day. Their opinion of you is none of your business if you're not on my list, right? That's how we can guard our heart. So make sure, though, that you have a list because you've got to have somebody, but guard your heart. Um, the next attribute of a friend is that they will encourage you. Hebrews 10, verse 2 says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Friends are going to encourage. They're going to give courage. They got your back. They want to see you succeed. They're not going to let you fail. And my favorite example of an encouraging friend in all of fiction, okay, comes from the Lord of the Rings, all right? Now, pardon me for a minute if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, but I am going to geek out about Lord of the Rings for about the next 60 seconds, so just pardon me, but here we go. I love the movies. They're like some of my all-time favorite. And my favorite character in the entire story is this guy right here. This is Sam. He's the best. He is the best friend anybody could ever. He is the most encouraging, loyal, faithful friend ever. And in case you're not too familiar with the story, okay, there's this little hobbit. Okay, His name is Frodo, and he's entrusted with this ring. And he's got to go destroy this ring to destroy evil once and for all. He embarks on this huge journey with all sorts of craziness and danger. And Sam is with him every single step of the way. No matter what, through thick and thin, he is there. And there's a scene towards the end of the third movie, Return of the King, that just epitomizes Sam's friendship in the best possible way. And so they're in Mordor, which is this evil, wicked place. And they're almost to their destination where they can destroy the ring. And Frodo is just done. He has nothing left. He's exhausted. He cannot take another step. There's, he just has nothing left. And Sam looks at him and he says, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And he picks him up and carries him on his shoulder up the mountain. And dude, it is like one of the greatest scenes ever. I've seen it dozens of times and every single time I watch it, I wanna just jump off my couch and start cheering because it's just so inspirational. He's just the best, most encouraging friend. He's like, I got you, you're not gonna fail. I'm with you every single step of the way. And so Sam, we all need an encouraging Sam in our life. Yes, can I get an amen for Sam, all right? <laughs> yeah, come on now. Okay, so that's the second one. So a friend will tell you the truth, they'll encourage you. Number three is a friend will pray for you. Yeah. Where else are you going to find somebody to pray for you, right? One of the things that's really cool is if you get involved in a life group, what we do is all the life group leaders, they sign this covenant. Part of that covenant is they say that they will agree to pray for every single person who attends their life group. 
which I think is just awesome. If you need another reason to get into a life group, there's another one for you. Okay, they're going to pray for you. They are going to intercede. They're going to they're call on the name of the Lord on your behalf, right? If you need some prayer in your life, get in a life group and get some U2s and some real friends because they are going to pray for you. And the fourth attribute is that a friend will help you grow. Friends can help you grow in a lot of different ways, and specifically here I'm, I'm talking about spiritual growth. Um, and so God uses friendships to speak to us. He uses friendships to help us grow. Where do you need to grow? Where could you help somebody else grow? We've got to surround ourselves with friends who are going to help us grow. And, and this is a person, too, a true friend. It's a person that you can tell bad news to. It's a person that you can tell your mess-ups to, and they're not going to make you feel stupid. They're also not going to try to one-up you, right, and turn the conversation over to them. They're going to listen. They're going to care. They're a person that you can also tell good news to, and they're not going to secretly be jealous or envious of you. They're genuinely happy and congratulatory and want to celebrate with you. Right? We've got to surround ourselves with these types of people. So those are the attributes of a true friend, and I want to conclude today with a story. And this is a story by a guy by the name of Horatio Spafford. Maybe you've heard of that name. Maybe you've heard this story. But Horatio Spafford was a Christian, and he was an American lawyer who was very wealthy, owned a lot of real estate and properties in the city of Chicago during the 1800s. But Horatio Spafford lost a fortune, almost lost everything, in the great Chicago fire of 1871. And two years later, in 1873, Spafford was planning on doing a vacation in England to visit his friend by the name of D.L. Moody, who was a, a Christian evangelist. And he was planning on taking a vacation with his, his wife, Anna, and their four daughters, but he was delayed. And so what he decided to do was to send them ahead on the ship, and then when he became available, he would go meet up with them. But the vessel that his wife and daughters were on struck an iron sailing ship, and it sank and his four daughters were lost. And his wife was miraculously found floating on a plank of wood, unconscious but alive. And when she was available, she came to and she sent Horatio a telegram with two words that said, saved alone. And she was able to get to England and then when Horatio was able, you know, rushed to, to, to go meet up with her. And, and so Horatio was, was meeting up with her and, and he, was, he was on a, a ship across the, the ocean as well, and the captain notified him that they were crossing the area where the previous ship that his wife and daughter was on had sunk. And it was at that time Horatio retired to his cabin. He sat down at a table, and he wrote the words to the song that we just sang, It Is Well With My Soul. Yeah. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he lost all of his peace on the cross so that you and I could have eternal peace. How in the world could somebody like Horatio Spafford go through unimaginable tragedy and then sit down and write the words, let go my soul and trust in him. It is well, it is well with my soul. How in the world could somebody like the Apostle Paul go through all sorts of hardships and persecutions and difficulties and then write from in prison 
I have learned to be content no matter the circumstances. How in the world could somebody like James write just the mind-blowing words of to consider it pure joy when you face difficult trials and circumstances? And I come back to that quote from St. Augustine, it's because they loved the immutable, the unchanging God, and that's why they were able to write those words. And that's when their hearts found the peace and the tranquility within, because they loved the immutable. Do you? And if you don't, I want to give you that opportunity to today. Would you stand with me all over this place, please?